Our Father, we have much to learn of Jesus and much to learn of worship. Help us to learn from Jesus about worship, not that we may know more, but that we may worship more truly and in a way that more pleases you and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is religion and there's religion. The word itself is perfectly good. What religion means is the worship and service of God. Is Christianity a religion? Absolutely, it's a religion. Sometimes you'll hear people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's just a word game. It definitely is a religion. religion. It's a relationship in which we serve and worship God according to his word, according to what he's revealed about what pleases and glorifies him. It's the worship and service of God based entirely on scripture, centered on God's person and his will. Indeed, Christianity is a religion. It's a revealed religion. But then again, there's religion. There is bad religion. There's religion that is man's religion. This religion centers on man. And while it may borrow a few random ideas and words from revealed religion, it's utterly locked into and under control by man and man's ideas and man's tradition. And that's what Jesus confronts in this section today. He confronts man's religion in the name of the religion of God. This section is in the shape of a chiasm, which I've put on your outline for you. And my outline, uh, the sermon outline, is basically based on the chiasm. So we'll see this as we go through. This is a large sample this week. What happens in this section, this is a large sample of what got Jesus killed. So we will listen closely and learn together today. So Roman numeral one, we see bad religion blasted in verses 12 and 13. My translation, and Jesus entered into the temple and he threw out all who were selling and buying in the temple and the tables of the money changers he overturned and the seats of those selling the doves. And he says to them, it has been written, my house, is a house, my house, a house of prayer will be called, but you people are making it a cave for robbers. First then we see Jesus' entry in verse 12a. Jesus' entry, that's uh, letter A on your outline. And Jesus entered the temple. When did this happen? And note down Mark 11, 11, though we won't go there. But that is a parallel account of this same thing. Now, there's two basic ways of narrating events. One is to proceed chronologically, and one is to proceed topically. In chronology, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Topically, well, here's something that happened, and here's something just like it, and here's something related to it, although they may not be in chronological sequence. Well, in this case, Mark's method is chronological and Matthew's is topical. Uh, if we read Mark 11:11, 11, 11, he says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now that's on Sunday, what we looked at last week, verses one through 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. And then the events that we are studying today happened the next day on Monday. 
So they got to the city late and all they had time was this triumphal entry as we call it and the acclamation of Jesus. He took a brief visit to the temple and then left the city. Comes back the next day and what we are reading about here happens. So Jesus enters Sunday evening and he returns Monday morning and this is just a few days before his death. All the rest of Matthew's gospel is just this last week in the earthly life of our Lord Jesus. So that's when, what about where? We see the word temple, temple, temple several times in this passage. What temple is this? This is the temple build, built by King Herod. It's not Solomon's temple, it is Herod's temple. It's a massive affair. It takes up a lot of real estate. Some 172,000 square yards which is to say 35 football fields, 35 acres. This is a massive complex. And within it, there are concentric areas. The largest outer area is what is called the Court of the Gentiles. And that's what we're reading about today. The Court of the Gentiles, basically anybody could enter into it and could pray, but then there was a wall that prevented their passage further in. Court of the Gentiles, so-called, because uh, women and Gentiles alike, and even those who were not ritually able to go further into the temple complex, they could come in here. And there was, as I said, a wall that prevented people from going further, and there were 13 entrances, and each entrance bore these words. We've actually found the remnants of these placards written in Greek and in Latin, and they said, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So this is something they felt pretty strongly about. This court of the Gentile, and by the way, if you remember the book of Acts, Paul was suspected of bringing a Gentile further in. That's why they got so upset. So that's where it is. Matthew uses the word heron, temple, to uh, describe the whole complex. The word naos, sanctuary, supplies, uh, describes the innermost part where the altar is and where the Ark of the Covenant is. So Jesus' entry. Now letter B, Jesus' expulsion. Throwing out his expulsion. E-X-P-U-L-S-I-O-N. Jesus' expulsion. And he threw out all those who were selling and buying in the temple. And the tables of the money changers he overturned and the seats of those selling the doves. So what's the function of those that we're reading about here? We read about the money changers. <clears throat> this refers to the fact that people came to the temple and had to pay their temple tax. We've studied about that before. They had to pay their temple tax and, and to pay this they had to pay in a specific coin the coin of the sanctuary. Now, what they decided to accept was only Tyrian coins. Uh, and there were a great many other coins. There were mints everywhere. There were materials of various kinds, copper, bronze, and silver. Now, Tyrian coins were accepted because they were the purest and they had a consistent weight. So this was a consistent thing. Now, people were coming to the temple from all around, however, having all sorts of different currency, and they needed to have that currency, so it was a great convenience to them to have these tables of money changers, and they would bring their various coins up to the money changers and have them exchanged for Tyrian coins for a nominal fee. Now, that nominal fee, of course, gave 
possibility for abuse. Now, uh, scholastically speaking, the scholars are just not sure about how much abuse there was. There was abuse. Jesus speaks of robbers here, so it's very possible that amount of robbery was going on, although this really isn't Jesus' focus. But this was a place where people could be taken. They're there with their money, they're needing to have this coin, and it just is too convenient to get what will be accepted here. And the money all went to the priests who controlled this process. Uh, the priests mainly being Sadducees at this time. So the prophets went to them. They were in charge and they were over all of this. Thus far the money changers. Then the sellers of pigeons. Now, you read in the Old Testament for, of the offerings and there are some situations where a pigeon is the prescribed offering. But in other cases, a person who is just too poor to afford livestock could use a pigeon instead. So these were the animals offered by the poor and for other specific, uh, specific needs. Now, you see easily the convenience of this sort of thing. If you're coming from hundreds of miles away, bringing the right animals, that's going to be pretty tough. And then you also see the vulnerability, because if you've read the Pentateuch, you know that uh, all animals had to be ritually pure. They had to have no um, skin scars or diseases of any sort. And so again, there's a real possibility for abuse. You bring your pigeon, you bring your lamb, your whatever in, and the priest has a, uh, the inspector has a ring with a spur on it. And, he's, and he says, oh, look here, there's a cut on the side here. You can't possibly use this in offering. So there's a great possibility for abuse. And in fact, we read that at one point the, the pigeons were sold, at, as I recall, at something like 50 times their worth. Pigeons, what the poor people used. So again, you see a great uh, possibility for abuse to line the, the pockets, although they didn't have pockets, to line the purses of the priesthood controlling the temple worship. Now. Normally, both the money changers and the sellers of animals would be outside of the temple in the city. But in Passover, they were allowed to bring these into the temple structure. And so there they are in the temple structure. And so as somebody walks in, he's immediately struck with the sounds and the smell of all this commerce that's going on. And I remind you, don't think of an American store you, you run into this as soon as you travel abroad most places. Most places are not, and certainly in the, in the East, are not like in America where you go to Walmart and it's marked a price and you either buy it or you don't. But there you, would, you might take the meat up to the checker and say, so this says here it's $4.99 a pound. I'll go $2 a pound. He says, well, no, maybe $4 a pound. Well, no, I can't do more than two fifty. And there's haggling and going, well, look at this thing. It's not that great. This meat doesn't look that fresh. No, it's absolutely fresh. We got this. And there's all this haggling and arguing going on. Well, you can well imagine this sort of thing was going on there as well. The smells of the animals, the haggling, the business making. This was the atmosphere you're, you're, you're confronted with when you walk into, where is this? The temple of God. But... It's like you've left the secular world of business and you've walked into, well, the secular world of business with a little sprinkling of religion dust on top of it. And that's what Jesus is really objecting to, as we'll see. But wait a minute, I left somebody out, didn't I? There's the sellers of pigeons, there's the money changers. Who else does Jesus throw out? 
Look at your text. The buyers. So our mind goes to them and the priests and we think, well, they're blameworthy. How dare they? But Jesus throws out the buyers as well. Where would the sellers be without buyers? The buyers are there enabling the selling. That's why the selling is going on, because there's people to buy. And Jesus' displeasure rests on both, and he expels both. We'll return to that later. Now notice Jesus' action. He threw them out. Now this is a fairly forceful word. Ekbalo, it's, it's used of casting out demons. Oh my. It's used of throwing people out into the outer darkness of hell. It's a pretty um, forceful word. He's expelling them. He's throwing them out of the temple. Jesus is doing this. Now, there's no indication that he's doing this with the help of the disciples. I imagine they're walking, watching in uh, slack-jawed uh, astonishment as he does this all by himself. But notice, nobody stops him or challenges him. And maybe you say, well, there, there may not have been any guards there. Oh, how likely do you think it was, would be that there would be tables full of coins of various denomination and no bodyguards, no protection. Very unlikely. And yet nobody says a word. And nobody resists him. And nobody stops him. He simply does this. He simply stops business. Bam! Just like that in this part of the temple. So this is something about Jesus. It reflects the kind of person that he is. It it reflects the kind of impression that he made. We'll talk more about that in just a second, but I do want to note that this is an unusual action. What other actions of judgment do you see in the ministry of Jesus? Well, come to mind are two, and they're right by each other. They're right here. There's this expulsion in the temple, and he did do this once at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, so this is the second we know of. And then there's the cursing of the fig tree, and they're right beside each other, and they really point to the same thing. As we'll see, this is an unusual move of Jesus, but it's a very loud and public move of Jesus. That's his action. So what does this tell us about his person? What do we learn of Jesus seeing this? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? We just read it in verse 5. How does the prophecy describe the king riding in on his donkey? It calls him lowly, or in my translation, I called him gentle. That's the way I translate that word, lowly. Or gentle, lowly, gentle Jesus here knocks tables over and stops business and drives people out of the temple. So obviously we, we learn some things about Jesus that his gentleness and lowliness was not weakness. It wasn't namby-pambiness. It wasn't, he wasn't a raised pinky elitist who liked talking about these things and whose idea of response to error and abuse and false doctrine was to write a strongly worded letter. Well, not too strongly, but a, a very nuanced and helpful and winsome letter so that nobody, God forbid, anybody would be offended by what he wrote. This obviously was not Jesus' priority. What was his priority? Well, you think of John 2. What did the disciples later think and they reflected back on his cleansing the temple at that time? They reflected on the verse from the Psalms that says, zeal for your house will eat me up. You see precious little of that in evangelical leaders today, do you? You just wonder what would upset them. 
Well, what upsets them is people who aren't nice and nuanced and winsome. They don't like that at all. But teaching of error and practice of error, coddling of error, that's not such a big deal to them. But it was a big deal to Jesus. Confronted with false religion, with dishonoring God, with abusing people in the name of God, Jesus was wroth. He was very strong, and he acted in a holy, righteous, angry manner. In John chapter 2, he even picked up a whip. Uh, We don't read a whip here. Apparently, it wasn't necessary. Just the sight of him was enough to stop what they were doing. So this is Jesus. This is the real Jesus. We might not pick the word nice and put it on him truthfully. Nice wasn't his concern. The glory of God was his concern above all and the service of God's people to the glory of God. And we see him in action here. You got to wonder today, people, denominations, whole denominations. I just read of a reminder that when the Supreme Court uh, ruled that it was legal to force everyone to say that two men could be married, that church bells rung across the land and denominations celebrated this decision. Abomination, abomination. And you can't think Jesus would have shared in the cheering. No, you see Jesus here. He's angry and he is offended and he takes action. <clears throat> so Jesus' expulsion. Letter C, Jesus' expostulation. I didn't make you write that one down. You're welcome. The word expostulation means his protest, his, his rebuke. And what is his rebuke? Here's where he shows us what it is that bothers him about this. He's acted, now he gives us words to understand why he so acts. And he says to them, it has been written, my house, a house of prayer will be called. But you people are making it a cave for robbers. And this you people, that is emphatic in Greek. There's a little touch of grammar that makes it you. He's pointing his finger at them. You people are making it a cave for robbers. Well, let's look at the, the large, well, the big biblical background, meaning the larger picture, the big biblical background, the big picture of what's going on here. What is this temple? What's the idea of the temple? Well, you've, most of you have often heard me say that this is not a sanctuary. This building is not a sanctuary. The people of God is a sanctuary. The building is not. If we move out onto the lawn uh, north of here, then the sanctuary moves to the lawn and this room stays here. But there was a sanctuary at one time. There was a building where God lived, where God made himself known, where God revealed himself. That was the temple, the tabernacle, and then later the temple. And he said that was the exact purpose of it. He gave instructions, exact instructions to Moses and told him to follow it to the letter to, in, to construct a, uh, what was called a mishkan, which is built from the verb shakan, which means to dwell. So meaning a dwelling place. This is where he would dwell, how he would be present in the middle of the people of Israel. And he gave uh, very specific instructions so that a vivid picture of what it meant to approach him uh, would be laid out in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And this indeed would be a place and a, a, a focus place for worship and for prayer and for revelation. Sacrifices were to be brought there alone, not just anywhere anyone wanted to make them. They were to be brought there alone. And there Yahweh himself would speak from between the cherubim that were in the Holy of Holies. And 
Solomon, you might note down 1 Kings 8, it's worth a read just to impress this on yourself. 1 Kings 8, he often prays to Yahweh about the person who would pray facing that building, facing that sanctuary, and praying that Yahweh would hear that one, even the foreigner who would pray facing that sanctuary, that he would hear and answer the prayer that his name might be made known and might be glorified. So that was the purpose of this tabernacle and later temple, the movable tabernacle, the fixed temple, of which we're looking at one of the iterations of it, one of, one of the creations of it, the temple. So that's the big biblical picture. The purpose of the tabernacle was that was a vivid representation of where God made himself known and where God bid that his people would worship him, pray to him, and hear him speak. Now let's look at the narrower prophetic background to what we're reading about here. He says to them, it has been written, my house, a house of prayer will be called, but you people are making it a cave for robbers. Now you notice in my translation, there's two sets of quotations within Jesus' words. That's because he quotes from two scriptures in this verse. Now first, his first word to them is gegraptai. It has been written. Now this is, this is Jesus' unfailing go-to. Whether he's speaking to the arch tempter or whether he's speaking to false teachers or whether he's speaking to anyone, it's always gegraptai with Jesus. It is written. It stands written. He always goes to Scripture. Jesus, the Son of God, whose very words were Scripture, he constantly went to Scripture. And again, I challenge and ask you who profess to yourself to be a, a Christian, can you do that? Can you not just say, oh, this is what I think, or this is what I know is true, but can you say, this is what Scripture says, and if someone says where, you can show him. This is what a follower of Jesus seeks to do. And you say, well, I can't do that very well. My only question is, are you growing in that? My question isn't whether you're good at it, but do you realize that it is what we are all called to do, and are you growing in it? Or have you just decided that's not for you? Well, if it's not for me, then Jesus' way is not for me, right? Because this is Jesus' way. It's ever Jesus' way. It's Jesus' way here. It is written, he says, a house of prayer. My house, a house of prayer will be called. You see, that's a wooden translation, but I I made it that way to show the emphasis in the Greek. House of prayer is stuck up front in the sentence. That's where Jesus wants us to focus. The thing that God's house was to be called was a house of prayer, but you've made it a cave for robbers. Now this house of prayer then, he's quoting from Isaiah 56, and I encourage you to to turn there. Not too hard to find, big book after the Psalms. Isaiah 56. Now the verse he's quoting is from verse seven. You'll see there, my house will be called a house of prayer. For all the peoples, he doesn't quote that all the peoples part, as his ministry here is focusing on on Israel still, though he's been reaching out. But look at the context of that statement. You start in verses 1 and 2. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is revealed. Well, that sounds very messianic, and it is. That, That is what really brought these things, the coming of Christ brings his righteousness and his salvation. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it. In other words, who walks in God's ways from the heart. Uh, Drop your eyes down to verse six. 
also the foreigners who joined themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, to be his slaves, every one of them who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, that's the mountain on which Israel rests, and make them glad in my house of prayer, that's the tabernacle or the temple here, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. There it is. That's God's intention, that people who walk with him worship him in his house. But then look at what he goes on to say, verse 9. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. Who's he talking to? Israel's leaders. Read on. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs have a strong appetite and do not know satisfaction. And they are shepherds who do not know understanding, and they've all turned to their own way, each one to his greedy gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us take wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink, for tomorrow will be like today, beyond exceedingly great. So there you see the context of this works very well with what is going on in the temple, that he's faulting the leaders, that the leaders are after gain, they're after greediness, they can't bark, they don't know what they're doing, they don't have godly discernment, and they're not about the worship of God, they're about the lining of their purses. They're complete failures in terms of godly leaders, and the people who they lead are going in the same direction. That comes out more in the next quotation, he says, You people are making it. Now, you people, who's he talking to? We think, oh, he's talking to the priests. Who did he expel from the tabernacle? I keep wanting to say tabernacle. Who did he expel from the temple? Buyers and sellers. He's talking to all of them. And he says, they're all making it a cave of robbers. Now, that comes from Jeremiah 7. Turn there with me. If you're still in Isaiah, you're right next door to it. And the quotation itself comes from verse 11. You could just look there. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den? But we understand that a lot better if we go back to the start of the chapter. So let's. Verse 1, the word of Yahweh comes to Jeremiah. Verse 2, stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh. That's the temple. Stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh, and you shall call out there this word, and you shall say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Make your ways and your deeds good, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in lying words, saying, This is the temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. For if you truly make your ways and your deeds good, if you truly do justice, and so on, verse 7, then I will let you dwell in this place. Verse 8 says, behold, you're trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear while lying? That's weird. Those are all the things he talks about, Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Steal, murder, commit adultery, swear while lying. Yep, check, check, check and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, 
Oh, now do you see what's going on then? What is this, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh? They think they're safe because it's Yahweh's temple. So they can do whatever they want. They can live like hell. But they, by not an expression, obviously, they can live like hell. And then come into the temple and they're safe because it's the temple. And they can check off all the sacrifices because that's what's on the list. And they're okay. Though their life says they want nothing to do with God. But if they go through the external motions in, their right, the, in the right external place, well then everything's going to be fine with them. And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Look at verse uh, 12. But go now to my place which is in, was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. What's that talking about? Well, uh, the, temple, the tabernacle first stood in Shiloh. You see that in the books of Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. It's in Shiloh. But the people's sin led God to bring judgment. And that place was wiped out. And so he's saying, remember what happened when people thought the building would save them, though they were not walking with me. You remember that. And now he says in verse 13, and now because you've done all these works, declares Yahweh, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, just as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my presence, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the seed of Ephraim. Now, do you see what's going on here? And do you see the context here? Why, it's a very alarming context, isn't it? Now that you know Jesus speaking to people who should be assumed to understand the context he's quoting from, well, those are two pretty alarming illusions, aren't they? Those are not comforting at all. And he's talking about people who thought that by coming into the right place, they were okay, to people who think that by coming into the right place, they're okay. And that they can buy the right things and make the right sacrifices, and they're Jake with God. They're okay with God. They're right with God. So now let's turn to the specific situational background. Number three, the specific. We've seen the big biblical background the narrower prophetic background, now the specific situational background. So true, greedy Pharisees and Sadducees, they had a nice business going. They could use God and the people who came for God for a prophet. That's true. They could do it in the, in the temple, which, as I described, makes for a very unprayerful atmosphere, a profitable atmosphere to them, but not a profitable atmosphere spiritually to those who came seeking God. Ah, that's part of it. What's the other part of it? For convenience sake, people supported them. And when they supported them, they were supporting the system. And it could be very well that since it didn't offend them to come do business in the the temple, that they brought the same secular spirit that, yep, I buy these, I get these approved coins, I get these approved animals, I can live like hell, drop a few coins, and everything's okay between me and God. Just like the people in the context that Jesus quotes from. Being there, checking the boxes, everything's good. So you see, Jesus' displeasure takes in both the sellers and the enablers. Both the people who are making commerce there and the people who are doing commerce there. Neither one is excluded. 
It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but they've made it a house of business. And notice, he calls it, he says they've made it a den of robbers. Well, you know, we, we, we tend to think that it's, it's all about the false prophet made, and that can't be the case because do robbers rob in their den? Their den is where they go after they've robbed. It's where they hang out. And so what Jesus is saying really is that they're all a bunch of robbers hanging out. They're all a bunch of robbers, the sellers and the buyers. They're all hanging out in God's temple, and they're all robbers. And he wants them out. So now let's think of some powerful present-day application of this. Now, uh, as I never, never tire of reminding people, church buildings are not temples, but the people of God is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Ephesians 2 says we're being built up into a holy sanctuary in the Lord by the Holy Spirit as we approach uh, approach God by the Spirit in His Son. This is His temple. This, the, the church assembled is. Now, I just pause to say that this is the church. You, you can't do church at home. No, you're not doing church when you sit on a mountainside looking at the sunset. What does the word church mean? It means assembly. One of you is not an assembly. I'm not an assembly. An assembly is the people of God coming together. The people of God come together and form the sanctuary of God. And what's the purpose? Well, it's very much like the purpose of the tabernacle. That God is to be worshipped and God is to be prayed to and God speaks there as his word is preached faithfully. All this happens in uh, the assembly of God's people. And so the one reason why God's people should come together in the church is to worship God by hearing, learning, and doing His Word. That's it in a nutshell. That's the one purpose people should go to church and look for a church. The, the purpose is to come together and hear and learn and do the Word of God faithfully. But consumerism has taken control of everything. And the evangelical church scene is all about consumerism. And faithfulness is judged by fruitfulness. And fruitfulness is judged by what? Numbers. Numbers. How many come? How many are baptized? And so the approach of consumerism is we must give the people what they want. And the approach of the believer is I must give God what he commands. Now, you might have expected me to say, I must give God what he wants, but I dare not say that anymore because I know what probably most evangelicals would do with that. Yes, I totally agree. We need to give God with what he wants. Now, let's see. What do I think God wants? What sort of thing would God want? If I were God, what would I want? Oh, no, that's not the way to go. And that's not worship. That's self-worship. The only way to know what God wants is by his word. He's revealed 100% of what he wants in his word. And the only way to give him what he wants is to learn and do what he says what he wants. Every part, as I've shown you in a sermon before, every part of what we do, we don't do because we think God would want it. We do because God says he wants us to do that in his word. And so that's the difference between consumerism that we see here in this incident and the true worship of God. So people don't want the word of God above all. They want all sorts of things. So the church peddles all these other sorts of things. And the people support it. So with whom is Jesus displeased? 
<laughs> everyone, I heard the word everyone, that'll work. Is he pleased with the people who mislead or the people who are misled? He's displeased with all. He's displeased with those who certainly could know better and yet choose to support the system by coming. And I sent you all out a cartoon. You've all seen it. Think of it now. Picture it in your mind. That the only thing holding up false teachers is the people who support them. They're all out on a plank, and the people are standing on the plank. And if the people got off the plank, well, they'd be gone. Where, where would Benny Hinn be? Where would, where would Joel Osteen be? Where would Kenneth Copeland be? And we could go on and on and on. Where would they all be if it wasn't for all the people filling those auditoriums? And all the people helping in the parking lot, and all the people turning off and on the lights, and all the people manning the, the, the lighting and the power, you know, all the people who keep this going, they're all contributing to this system. And none of them is, is uh, inculpable, is, is exempt from keeping this consumerist system going. So every time I see some big name say, give me men who will preach the word, as if, well, you just do that and everything will be okay. I always think there are men preaching the word all over the place. They're preaching to 10 people, 20 people, 100 people. You just don't know about them, big name conference speaker, because they're not big enough to be able to afford you. They're not big enough to be able to afford you coming out and speaking at their church, so you don't even know them. The trouble is not only, now I'm all for more and more faithful preachers, oh yeah, but what about people going to hear them preach? Not just going to hear them preach, but to learn from what they preach. Not just to learn from what they preach, but to do what they learn from what they preach. Put into action Christian growth and service, commitment and involvement. Ah, that's the give me more. Give me more people to preach and hear and do the word of God. And you get my total amen. And more unbelievers to hear and believe the gospel. You'll get a, a, a chorus of amens from me. You'll get the hallelujah chorus from me. I would love to see both those things happen. This is what we need. But indeed, this is the situation here. You see consumerism here. You go into the temple and it's just like outside the temple. It's business. Out there, uh, McDonald's, Target, everybody, they're doing what, what they can to bring people in. In the church, same thing doing what they can to bring people in. When God says, here's what I want you to do, and that's not really the priority. And when Jesus says that, he stops it. He stops it. Now let me just say here that before we move on, this is not an act of reform. Now, Jesus, as far as we know, has done this twice. John talks about him doing it in John chapter 2 at the start of his ministry. That's the time with the whips. And then... After he left, presumably the, the pigeons and the tables and the coins all came back out when he left. And he comes back three, maybe four years later, and he sees everything just the same. And he does this, and this time it's not for reform, really. What is this? It's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment, because now their time's up. What's he going to do later on? What's the next story? the cursing of the fig tree. And when his disciples all gather around him and say, what a beautiful compound this temple compound is, what's his first response? Do you see all these stones? What does he say? There's not one of them going to be left on top of another. Why? Because of this. 
And it's because of this attitude that when the actual Messiah comes, they want no part of him. If they'd been given over to the worship of God, they would have welcomed him with repentance and tears and genuine faith. But that was not what they were about, and he was an interruption to their religion. And so they killed him, and so they were destroyed, and they were scattered, just like Jeremiah said. And Isaiah also made the same warning in his book. So let's look now at an interesting next turn. We've seen bad religion blasted. Now let's see true religion blessed in verses 14 and 15. First noting who Jesus welcomed. He just threw some people out. What do we read in verse 14? And came up to him. Who came up to him? Blind and lame people in the temple. Now, that's not necessary, but Matthew wants us to remember this is in the temple. This happened. He wants to be sure we don't think this happened outside the temple. This was in the temple that he just judged. In that same temple, blind and lame people came up to him and he healed them. So look, he'd just driven out the somebodies, the people with money, and now the nobodies come up to him. Who had no money, who were of no interest to the priesthood because what did they offer? What did blind lame people have to give? What would they see to the end of value in them? That wasn't their clientele, but they're the ones who come up to Jesus. Now they were excluded from going further in because of their imperfections because of their their maladies they couldn't go further into the temple but they could come here and that's where they found Jesus they came up to Jesus who uh, was a very special kind of priest who had not only the ability to say you're blind so you're excluded from going in further but he had the ability to say you're blind here let me fix that you're lame here let me fix that now you can go in so that's what, that's what happened. They came up to him. Jesus healed them. Now, notice particularly two wonders that are going on here. Did you ever notice that he slams them for the fact that God's temple should be a place of prayer? And the very next thing that happens is, well, what is it when you walk up to God? What do you call that? That's prayer. And here we have blind and lame people coming up to God, God the Son. So immediately he casts out the somebodies and the nobodies, and they pray. They come up to God the Son. That's prayer. And these are people of no profit to the big men, but they are loved by Jesus. And it's very much like what his mother said, what Mary said after um, hearing from Elizabeth. You remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, she said, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. <laughs> that kind of sounds like a prophecy of this incident, doesn't it? He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he sent away empty-handed. Well, these people who are coming up to him now, what, what, what can you say of them? The other people, they were pretty full. They had money to exchange. They had goods. Uh, they were either buying or they were selling. What did these people have? misery, need, and that drove them to Jesus. Do you want to know what drives me to Jesus? Misery and need. Not just that. Not just that, now that I know him. But what drove me to him? Misery and need. 
Misery and need drives them to Jesus, and they seek Jesus. Ah, so finally, some real worship is going on in the temple. But not just them. That was, if I didn't say it clearly, that was who Jesus welcomed. Letter A, who Jesus welcomed. True religion, blessed. And first we see who Jesus welcomed. Now in letter B, we see who welcomed Jesus. In verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he did, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, I I can't help myself but stop there. I mean, suppose you'd never read this before, and you knew that priests, their job was to worship God and serve God and believe in the word of God, and you read these words. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he did, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, what words would you write next? What would you expect to read next? Oh, they were overcome with praise and worship. They, or they humbled themselves in repentance and, and bowed before his feet. Or, or they burst out in praise for God, for his wonderful acts of mercy, and, and for even children being... No, but that's not what you read, is it? They were indignant. That's the way you've got to say that word, because that's the feeling of that verb. They were offended. They were, they were righteously angry to see this going on. In the temple being healed and, and, and children singing praises to this prophet. Well, we're going to get to that in a second, but let's look at the children first. Little children. Now, isn't this interesting? This is, how many times has Jesus been lauded as son of David now? The two blind beggars came running after him, calling him son of David, and the crowd told them to shut up. And then the crowd calls him son of David. And now the children who heard the crowd. Interesting how this spread, isn't it? The blind beggars call him son of David, son of David and the, the crowd hears this. Then they call him son of David. And the children hearing the crowd say it, they call him the son of David three times. Matthew likes his threes. They're, call, they're calling him. They're singing to him the same thing the crowd did. Hosanna, please save to the son of David. So now finally the temple sing worship. People are praying and worshiping. They're coming to Jesus and they're singing Jesus' prayers. This is a wonderful thing. The top men don't see it that way. But this is a wonderful thing. And so Jesus' act is prophetic. He's not reforming the temple. He's judging. And at the same time, what does he immediately do? He gives a little preview of what's next. Because this is a little picture of the church right here. Needy, miserable people coming up to Jesus and singing his praises. And that's pretty much what the church does. That's pretty much what the church does. So that's a picture of things to come as well as a preview of the judgment to fall. So we've seen who Jesus welcomed. We've seen who welcomed Jesus. Now let's go to the third major point, Roman numeral three. Bogus religion backfired. B-O-G-U-S, bogus religion, backfired. And we see in verse 16a, their heated protest. Their heated protest. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Are you hearing this, they say? Well, who are these Well, these are largely Sadducee chief priests and largely Pharisee Bible experts. That's what the chief priests and the scribes are. The chief priests are largely Pharisee 
and the scribes are largely sad, you see. We saw this same group back in chapter 2, verse 4, where Herod had to go to them to find out where the Messiah was going to be born, and they told him correctly where Messiah would be born and showed no interest in it. They'd heard he was about to be born, and they didn't lift a sandal to go see him. Now, that was very telling right there. We just saw this same group in chapter uh, 2018 in Jesus' words, where he said that he was about to go to Jerusalem, and these are the people who would kill him, the chief priests and the scribes, the Bible experts. Now, did the Pharisees and Sadducees, did they mostly agree about everything? They mostly disagreed about everything, but boy, they agreed about one thing. They hated them some Jesus. They hated Jesus. That they agreed on, and they could come together on that. So what had they seen? What had, what had these uh, top men seen? Well, Matthew says they saw the marvelous things he did. They saw his healings. Now, this was not a case like with the modern fakes where, you know, my hairstylist sister's brother heard on a radio broadcast that somebody read in an article about somebody who'd been healed. No, this wasn't it. They actually saw these wonders happening right in front of them. And in seeing that, what were they, what were they saying? Well, they're saying the presence of the kingdom. As I've shown you before, but just note down Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Then in the kingdom time, and here is the son of David doing this. And here are these children singing the praises of the son of David. They saw that. They saw the powers of the age to come there in God's Messiah. That's what they saw. But what did they know? And notice that no is in, new is in quotation marks. Well, they knew all they really needed to know, didn't they? Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2. Let me remind you of what that says. Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Maybe some of these same people came from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And that's not the first time they asked why Jesus broke tradition. Now, you and I, depending on our background, we look at that and we think, Oh, okay, so this is just a little thing they wanted to talk about. You know, they wanted to hear his view. No, 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 no. Tradition was with equal authority as Scripture. Tradition came at the same time as the Ten Commandments. It just wasn't written in the law to them. And so to not walk in the tradition, I split an infinitive, so sorry, not to walk in a tradition is not to follow God. You cannot be a godly person if you don't walk in the tradition. So they already knew this about Jesus, that he was not a godly person because he didn't walk in the tradition. And so you see this also in John chapter 9, also in Jerusalem, that some of the Pharisees, when they saw this man who'd been born blind, that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, they saw him and they said, well, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Oh, so they knew he wasn't from God because he didn't keep the Sabbath. Is it true he didn't keep the Sabbath? No. Healing on the Sabbath, if you're God the Son, is not breaking the Sabbath. He did not keep their idea of the Sabbath, which to them was unpardonable. So we know this man's not from God. And then in verse 24, John 9, 24, they asked the man again, give glory to God, 
we know that this man is a sinner. Well, there you go. They'd made up their mind. No, maybe five more evidences, maybe ten more arguments, maybe that would change their mind. No, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, as it is said. And they'd already knew that Jesus could not be from God. They already knew he was a sinner. So it doesn't matter how much he shows that he is God the Son, he can't be who he is. They know this for sure, no matter what they see. So what didn't they see and why? Well, God was right in front of them and they didn't see him. God the Son was right in front of them. God the Messiah was right in front of them and they were blind. Why? Well, in their psychology because of stubborn pride. And probably everybody in hell is going to be in hell because of stubborn pride. But also the judgment of God. I'll just summarize for you Matthew 13, 13 through 17. But do you remember after they committed the unpardonable sin and Jesus starts teaching in parables, which baffled them? Do you remember Jesus said, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And then he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to hear. See what you see, did not see it. Hear what you hear, did not hear it. They saw it, but they didn't see it. They heard it, they saw the miracles, heard the singing, didn't hear it, you see. So, their heated protest in verse 16a, Jesus' humiliating retort, R-E-T-O-R-T. And that's a sharp comeback. That's a sharp reply. Now, I, I just, I love this. So they, they, they say to him, basically, are you hearing this? <laughs> they say, in fact, you, can, you could say that they're saying to Jesus, can you even hear? And Jesus' response is, yeah. Can you even read? Isn't that just what he says? First of all, I love, and I, I the Greek manuscripts don't have a period after the word yes, but they should, because you really just should stop there. There's no conjunction or anything. He doesn't say yes, but, or yes, and. He just says yes. <laughs> I kind of love it, and I, I imagine a pause there. They say, do you hear what these children are, what the, these, they don't even say children, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says, yes. And? So he says, yes, and then he says, did you never read out of the mouth of infants and of nursing children you prepared for yourself praise? Again, scripture. Again and every time, scripture. So he turns to Psalm 8, which you could just look at later, but Psalm 8, you, you know it. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And the, the psalmist says you've established strength, but comes out of the mouth. The strength that comes out of the mouth is praise, as the Greek translation has it, and as Jesus quotes it. He points to scripture that God brings praise out of the mouth of infants and even suckling babies. Have you never read that? He says, Jesus says, have you never read that? There's another miracle. God is bringing his praise out of the mouth of these very young children. 
Oh, but here's another thing. Don't miss this. In Psalm 8, who is being praised? Whose name is majestic in all the earth? The name of Yahweh. Who's being praised here? Jesus. What is he doing? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's Yahweh? Yes. Matter of fact, yes. A hundred different ways he shows us. Yes, that's exactly. You know, it's like you say, oh, you say, well, he didn't say it. Well, suppose somebody walks into our church after the service and walks up to me and says, are you the pastor? And I start being coy and don't directly answer him. And somebody behind me says, oh, pastor. And I turn around and say, yes. (laughs) Well, this is kind of like that. He quotes a psalm in praise of Yahweh and applies it to himself. Yes, that's who he believes that he is. So uh, what even the great and the learned do not see, little children see and they praise. And Jesus often holds up little children as the example of what we need to become to enter the kingdom. And nothing like these people who already knew everything. And you know that this is the, oh, every every Christian has this problem. As a pastor, I certainly have this problem many times. How do I teach someone anything who knows everything already? And that's what these guys, that's where they are. They know everything already. So they don't know what they need to know. So finally, then we see Jesus' heraldic exit. Now, heraldic, of course, starts with an H. But what it means is prophetic. This is a prophetic, symbolic act, this exit of his in verse 17. And leaving them behind, he came out, out of the city, into Bethany, and he lodged there. So I translate that very literally so you can see Matthew stresses he's leaving. He has the last word. He says this word that you never read even the scripture, and then he exits. He leaves them. So now, this is what the prophets had warned would happen, happening in a symbolic act. God was leaving the temple. They were unrepentant and stubborn, and so God leaves the temple. And he will, re- he will destroy the temple and scatter the people. And so it happens. And I remind you something I alluded to a couple of weeks ago in, in the, the book of Ezekiel. If you would read chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel 8 through 11, you'll read a vision he had of the glory of Yahweh in the temple, stage by stage, leaving the temple and leaving the city. Now, that had been reversed when Jesus came from the hills into the city and then into the temple. With Jesus, the glory of God returned, and yet they wanted no part of him. And so here in a symbolic act, he leaves them, rejected. He he leaves them, a little token of what their future is about to be, abandoned by God, left desolate, as he will later say, until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we've seen a vivid portrait of false religion. Calculating, man-centered, superficial. Then we got a brief glimpse of true religion. Absolute nobodies coming up to Jesus to pray to him and to sing his praises. This is what our God seeks. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Needy, miserable nobodies who come to him who is the only real somebody to worship him in spirit and in truth. Those born of the spirit coming to him as father through the son. 
God, grant us to be those nobodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brilliant portrait of your glorious Son. We pray that these truths will lodge deep in our hearts and and bear fruit in us, that we might be those who worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we might be used by you to bring your word to others, that our acclaiming Jesus, our praise of Jesus, our speaking of Jesus might spread as we saw it doing here. In Jesus' name, amen.